looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild. <laughs> what up, Crazy Train Radio? You look like hell. And I could look the same. What's the photo for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Truth, 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 I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch has got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Friday fans, we know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hey everyone, this is Harrison Smith, director of Death House and Camp Dread in the special, and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc. Jonathan Steele. 
boy do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, this next guest is certainly pretty damn confident in terms of his directing and writing ability and with the material that is out there and has been seen by the fans. You can definitely see that confidence, but this next guest has certainly proved that he knows how to get the most out of the material that he has. And that's a pretty rare feat in this current time, I would say. But this next guest, writer, director, Harrison Smith. How you doing, sir? That is one hell of an introduction. Thank you. I'm, I'm doing well after that. <laughs> Thank you and good night. No. Uh, <laughs> you good night right that's what george did right thank you good night <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh what's going on in your world you are usually a pretty busy body that's for sure i try to stay busy yeah uh, quite a bit is going on um i'm gearing up for i'm in pre-production on two films right now uh but i have a book that just released uh for pre-order and uh, we can talk about that in a little bit but that's coming out now through uh, Bear Manor Media. It's coming out in hardback, paperback, ebook, and audiobook. So I'm excited about that. And um, we just had my one film uh, where the scary things are. We didn't win, but we placed uh, with three nominations for Best Picture, Best Screenplay, and a Judge's Choice at Horror Hound for their Spring Festival. And Horror Hound's a great horror festival. We didn't win, but that's okay. Because we got nominated, and quite frankly, the nominations are what I care about. So if we win, that's gravy. But to get a nomination, especially from a place like Horror Hound, I'm I'm just as fine with that. Horror Hound is definitely one of the bigger conventions in the states here, that's for sure. But you know what? You brought it up. Let's start with the book. This time sure. it's personal, a monster kid's history of horror memories and experiences. Correct. Coming out, if I yep. read that correctly, May 1st, but yep. it's available for pre-order now. So first and foremost, what can you say about the book? And you have an interesting person who we're going to talk to in a couple of months due to forward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, the forward was done by Adrian Barbeau. And uh, I've always been a huge fan of Adrian's for a long, long time. Uh, I was introduced, Adrian, through uh, my mentor and close friend, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, who is the director of Halloween 3, uh, writer of Halloween 3, Fright Night 2, Stephen King's It, the miniseries, uh, Vampires 2, you, you know, you name it, Tommy's there. And um, we all met, we hit it off. Uh, it was just great to, to know Adrian, but then to work with her, which we're doing now, we're working on uh, a Vampire 2. TV series right now. So uh, that's in, you should, I'm sure she'll maybe want to talk about that, but it's based on her book, Love Bites, and uh, very excited about it. And so I asked her to do the foreword because I kind of consider her, you know, to be like the first lady of horror. And um, the irony is, is that she hates horror. She loves making it. She doesn't like watching it. And um, that's very funny, considering she's made some really, truly great horror films. So 
she did the forward, which I couldn't be more pleased. That's kind of a, you know, a bucket list checkoff kind of thing right there. And mm -hmm. uh, the book itself, it came from uh, what I believe the inspiration. Well, here, let's go back a little bit. I, I was asked by a financier if I would be interested in creating a, a horror documentary. And, you know, there are just so many of them. And really, uh, you know, I, I went on Twitter and I talked to a lot of people. That's the fun part about Twitter. You, you really do get to interact with people. And uh, a lot of people have some really great feedback. And, and the overall feedback that I got was, you know, Eli Roth's latest, you know, horror series, his documentary series on the genre is pretty definitive. I mean, what, what more are you going to say in a documentary, especially once somebody of the stature of Eli Roth does it? And so I, I, I watched a number of, of the episodes and I thought it was extremely well done. There's there's no issue there. It's just, what am I going to add to it? I, I really don't have anything to add. I mean, what am I going to do? You know, call up Robert Englund and ask him, you know, to, to sit for an interview to say the things that he said how many times, right? I mean, there's only so many times you can tell a story. There's only mm -hmm. so many times you can give all the inside information of, of what you know. So I've, a lot of people kind of felt that way that, uh, you know, the horror documentary, at least for the moment, is a been there, done that kind of thing. So, you know, somebody said, you know, you should really write a book. And uh, I thought about that more and more. And, and I, I felt I had a lot to say with this book. And, and the book is stemmed kind of like from my podcast. My podcast is called Cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. And it's a mixture of both uh, cynicism and cinema. If you put them together, you get cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. And really what cinema is, is a look at how cynicism has affected our entertainment. And I truly do believe that. I believe that, uh, well, let me just define what cinema is. It's more than just cynicism. Cinema is the, it's when a, a filmmaker or a studio, whatever, a production has the means to truly make a great motion picture and makes the conscious decision not to. That's what Jaws the Revenge was. And Jaws the Revenge for me is the worst motion picture ever made. And I know people can throw out a whole bunch. No, Ed Wood and Manos, The Hands of Fate. No, 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 no. There is a big difference between so bad it's good entertainment and just plain fucking bad. And people are losing the ability to understand the difference between the two. I believe that Jaws the Revenge uh, was cynically made in the way that the filmmakers could have made a good movie, but they consciously chose not to because they simply didn't care. Jaws the Revenge had a $30 million budget, probably close to $10 million in marketing at that time in 87. And um, they had all the means to make something truly good. And they just made a conscious decision not to. Their attitude was, screw it. We're not going to do this. They got a three-month vacation out of Los Angeles for the winter to the Bahamas. Uh, they all got a nice paycheck out of it. This is my opinion. But my argument is, if you don't really think that, then tell me how somebody in a pitch session got Jaws the Revenge through. Because all you have to do is start pitching the plot 
in the first five seconds, somebody's going to be like, what are you, are you serious? Really? This is what you want to make? I, if I were the executive, if I were the head of Universal Studios, I would be telling that person who's pitching that to me, you're fired. Get out of here. Don't come to me with such garbage like that. But that's the thing. The project was incepted at the very top of the studio system. And that crap rolled downhill. So the book came from, I borrowed the title, This Time It's Personal, because I truly do believe that horror as a genre is extremely personal. That what scares you does not necessarily scare me and vice versa. You can run into people who say, oh, I've seen The Exorcist. I thought it was funny. I thought it was boring. It didn't scare me. But then they could turn around and say, well, I saw this and that scared the hell out of me. And then you would go, I can't believe that scared you because horror is personal. And then I looked at not just the, the personal connection of the genre to us, but also we're losing something very important and we're losing the theatrical experience. We're not like when I, I wrote about going to see, you know, some of these great, which are now classic horror films in the theater uh, with gigantic crowds. And part of the fun was watching with these people. And that includes the bad ones. Look, I don't, I'm, I've said it before. I don't know if I've said it on your show, but I think there are no good Amityville horror films. There isn't a single good one. I think they're all bad. I think they're all made terribly. I think most of them, uh, except for the, probably for the exception of Amityville 2, The Possession, which has some pretty high production value. Um, overall, I think they're schlocky. I don't think they're very scary. And they always end up where the house has to blow up at the end or somebody's chasing someone with an axe. We, we can never just have the ghosts, right? And I remember seeing the original Amityville Horror. I was a true believer at that time as a kid. I thought, oh my God, this really happened. I read the book. I thought the book. And to this day, I think the book is a very scary book. Why they have never turned that, move, that book into a movie exactly like the book is beyond me. But... I, was, I got into the theater with a bunch of friends in the summer of 79, and I'm telling you, we sat down to be scared, and we ended up laughing pretty much the whole way through that movie, and the best part was, so was most of the audience, and I can remember people hooting and hollering and laughing and people, what they were saying behind me, and that's part of the experience. Mm -hmm. That's part of the greatness of going to see a movie where 200, 250 strangers can be packed into a giant auditorium. And for 90 minutes or two hours, we're all the same. It doesn't matter what political side of the fence we're on. It doesn't matter what color we are. When the, when the lights go down, we're all the same color anyway. And that's what I love about it, that we're all in this theater and we're experiencing something together and we're reacting to it together and we're missing that. The pandemic really gave a major hit to the theatrical experience, but it had been going downhill for a while anyway. So the pandemic just came along and accelerated things. So for me, and it's not just horror, it can be any movie, but for me, in looking at the genre, I thought, well, maybe this is something I could write about and discuss, you know, what, what I saw. Like, 
how much fun I had seeing 1979's prophecy about the giant mutant bear and, and the fun we had, like that was almost like a, a mystery science theater or a Rocky horror feel to it by enjoying it with a crowd and we're laughing, we're clapping, we're applauding when that kid gets smacked in that sleeping bag. Oh my God, did we laugh? I mean, we almost fell out of the seats. It was one of the best theater going experiences I ever had. And I wanted to share more of that. And then I ended up becoming an usher at the local movie theater in the mall. So I got to see a lot of these movies open up to the public. Like I was there opening night for Friday the 13th, part four, uh, you know, uh, the final chapter. And I was in the back of the auditorium listening and watching this audience scream and freak out and girls running out the back of the theater auditorium and people cheering and all of that. You're not seeing a lot of that anymore. And that's a shame. And that goes not just for the 80s, it goes through all, all the way back. Uh, I wasn't alive, obviously, in the 30s and 40s and 50s and, and 60s. But my point is, is that we're losing something. And this is what provides the memory. So now I'm going to tie it together. Because now that I'm on the other end of things, and I'm in the industry, and I'm making horror films, and I go to conventions where a number of these celebrities are now my friends, uh, the best part is I can hide in plain sight because most people don't know my face and don't know that, that I'm Harrison Smith. So I can stand in the crowd next to Tony Todd's table or Adrienne's table. And then you hear these people come up and they're more than just saying, oh, thank you. I saw your movie. I liked your movie. They become very emotional. And one of the most emotional crowds that I've ever seen is for Felissa Rose at her table with Sleepaway Camp. And people break out in tears when they see her. And they talk about how the movie impacted them when they saw it in the theater for the first time or when they saw it on cable or, or videotape or, or streaming. It doesn't matter. The fact is, is that the impact of this genre is more than just watching it. It gives us experiences. It gives us memories. And that's what I wanted to write about. And that's what the book is all about. And I actually reached out to Twitter fans, uh, a number of people, well over 100 people, uh, contributed their memories of, of seeing a movie in the theater or, or seeing it with a group on home video. And that means something. And so I put those memories, I spiced them throughout the book where you know they're, they're blocked off in a text box and, and the memories are, are there for eternity because what I want is for people to read the book and go, my God, I wish I grew up then. I wish I could have seen a movie like in the theaters like that and had such a fun experience. When you paid that money to see a movie, you were also paying for the experience of it, not just to sit passively in a seat and watch it, you know, and, and I, I don't want to give away a lot of the book, but I put in so many great experiences when it was six of us that went down to Philadelphia at Temple University where they were showing The Exorcist on the big screen on, on campus. Now, I had seen The Exorcist a couple times by that point in the 80s on HBO. I saw it on home video. But I'm telling you, when six white kids walk into an almost black theater, Okay, and sit down to watch that movie on the big screen. It is an entirely 
different experience altogether. And it's also where six kids from a small, uptight, white town, okay, where we came down and got to, look, we only had maybe four black kids in our class. So for us, we were predominantly white and we were living in our little country town in the Poconos. Well, now we're in Philadelphia and we're in pretty much kind of like an inner city setting with Temple. You have to cross through some, some pretty sketchy territory in there. And uh, this was all new to us at the time. We were kids. What did we know? But what I did find out is that Black audiences watch a movie on screen very different than white audiences. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was fantastic. It was an education. It was fun. It was culturally enlightening. And, you know, somebody said to me, oh, well, that's racist. How can it be racist if I enjoyed it and I respected the situation and the people around me. I'm not saying I'm superior to them or they're inferior to me for the way they There are cultural differences between all of us. That's why they call it multiculturalism. If it was not multiculturalism, we'd have monoculturalism. So therefore, we are experiencing different cultures. Going to a white church up here in the North is very different than going to an all-Black church in the Deep South, mm -hmm. okay? And that has nothing to do with racism. It's simply a difference in cultures. That's it. What's wrong with saying that? I'm not saying anything's better or worse. I enjoyed it. I had a great time. So how can it be racist? And in this cancel culture that we have now, the, the people that I have found that are the most uptight are upper middle class white people. They are the most uptight about race. They're the ones that are so openly worried about so much about offending people. And, and I've, I've found this time and time again. So I wanted the book to encompass not just all of that, but also looking at the history around these movies. There's a reason why the remake of Friday the 13th was met with kind of a shrug by most horror fans. It's not badly made. It's well made. There's no issue about that. But does it really have anything to say anymore? Because one thing changed the slasher movie forever, and that was AIDS. AIDS changed everything. So by the end of the 80s, we were leaving the promiscuous, have sex, go to camp, have sex, have multiple partners, because AIDS was killing us. It was no longer a gay disease. Now we have a situation where it's, when it broke out into the mainstream, well, now shit, we've got to pay attention to this, okay? And suddenly those kind of sex-driven, hyper-sexed uh, slasher movies, they kind of all just went away. And now you, you live in a time when there are kids... They don't even go to summer camp. They don't even know what summer camp was. So for them to watch a Friday the 13th movie and go summer camp, what? What? They're home, home sitting on their phones. They're home sitting online. They're all talking to each other miles away, sitting in their bedroom. They never go outside. So you have an entire cultural shift that has changed. The landscape has changed. And my the relevancy of monsters. In other words, do these, it's kind of like 
this. Let me put it to you this way. In the 1920s and 30s, let's say the late 1920s, right around the Depression, and then going into the 30s and the early 40s, the monsters that reigned supreme at the box office and on screen were Dracula, the Frankenstein monster, the Wolfman, the Mummy, all of those creatures, the Invisible Man. And that was horror to people, okay? But then as the 30s turned to the 40s and Hitler came to power and we start seeing that war is starting, the war clouds are forming over Europe and things are going to get bad. And then 1941, the Japanese bomb us at Pearl Harbor and suddenly now our children are being sent off to war. And within the space of 1941 to 1945, we have the bloodiest conflict in human history. On top of it, we have two atomic bombs dropped. And then on top of it, we have the horrors of the discovery of the Holocaust. And now suddenly those monsters that were scaring us, like Frankenstein's monster, the Bride of Frankenstein, the Wolfman, they just weren't all that scary anymore, were they? They're not all that scary in comparison to dead bodies piled upon each other in death camps. They're not scary in comparison now to a weapon that can effectively wipe out the entire planet. So suddenly those monsters, they were no longer relevant. And that's why they turned into these kind of overdramatic sequels, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dragon, where we mashed up the monsters, right? We mashed them all up. Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman. There you go. And it culminates with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, right? And that was kind of the last gasp of the universal monsters. That was really it. So they were no longer relevant. The 1940s, we're turning to the 1950s. We have the atomic bomb. Now we have giant bugs. We have giant lizards. Now we have aliens. We have all of that stuff that have replaced laboratory monsters and vampires. Now they always come back. They always cycle back. But let's face it, aside from Christopher Lee and the hammer years, the peak hammer years, when has Dracula or Frankenstein's monster ever really been at the top of the box office again where people are talking about it? You can argue Robert De Niro's when he was in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You can argue Gary Oldman with Bram Stoker's with Coppola's, but they were kind of like small blips and they had cachet behind them. Okay, they had big star names behind them and they were a blip on the radar, but you can't really say that they've become classics in the genre. You can't say that. So, and then what we had the Monsters Squad, but again, the monsters in that were played for laughs, right? I mean, Count Dracula's in a costume that looks like he walked out of Party City or Spirit Halloween. You know, the, the creature from the Black Lagoon is just a guy in a rubber suit, you know, and he's played for laughs. And Frankenstein becomes a, you know, the Frankenstein monster becomes Frank, right? They call him Frank. And uh, he's a hero to children. He becomes a helper at the end. And he risks his life to save the kid. And they, you can't really count the Monster Squad as, as serious horror. It's, it's a sweet movie. And it's got a lot of nostalgia behind it. But it's not... Boris Karloff's Frankenstein. It's mm-hmm. not that at all. So I, I look at all of these things in the book. I look at how the 80s, how things came out of the 70s, how AIDS was starting to work its way through the economy, the Soviets, you know, plow into Afghanistan, 
We're worried about world war and nuclear war. Um, it, it goes through all of that. We tack, I tackle so much in this book to show why these movies were important at the time they were. And that if you take them out of the context of that historical time in that period, they're not as relevant as they were. And that's why Nightmare on Elm Street has struggled the way that it has. Um, Freddy Krueger is a product of the 80s. And he made it out of the 80s in the early 90s with Wes Craven's New Nightmare. But that was really about it, man. There, there was, I mean, I think Freddy's Dead was also a 90, 91 film. But tongue you in can cheek. still argue the 80s. What was that? It was tongue in cheek with uh, Freddy's, Freddy's Dead. Yeah, definitely. They, they were no longer all that serious. And, and, you know, New Nightmare's a meta movie, right? It's a movie about a movie. You know, the creature in the movie comes to life kind of thing. And I get it. And I like that Wes Craven took some chances on that and tried something different. Um, but Freddy has never really returned. I mean, Freddy versus Jason, which was really nothing more than different than Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. So we paired up two iconic, you know, characters and we put them together. We don't really have much of a story. I mean, and the story that we got, I thought was pretty stupid. And everybody goes, oh, no, it was so great. Well, my answer to that is always, well, if it was so great, why wasn't there another one, right? Why didn't we make another one? You know, that was what, 2003? Yeah. When that thing came out, 2004? Really? It's been like 18, 19 years. Nope. Nobody's, uh, nobody's made another one of those. It was so great. No, it's great for the fans, but you're not attracting anybody new to it. They're, you're not capturing a new generation of viewers. No. It's for all the fans, you know? So that's what the book talks about a lot and talks about uh, the major theatrical experiences that I had. Uh, I, you know, I saw, for example, um, The Thing, 1982's The Thing, to an almost empty theater. And yet I sat in that theater in the summer of 1982 going, knowing I was seeing something really damn cool. Like I was watching something truly great. And that was long before the internet came along and everybody suddenly rediscovered The Thing and everybody who once hated it now loves it. Right. Because mm -hmm. that's what happened with The Shining. I describe how we went to The Shining in 1980. And when we left that theater, there were a lot. My friends who went with me were there was a lot of what the fuck was that? And not in a good way. Not like, wow, my mind is blown. But that was a boring movie. And I was grossly disappointed because I read the book and I walked into the movie expecting it to be like the book. And it is really not much about the book at all. So everybody forgets that. And now you have, oh, The Shining, it's one of the top 25 terrifying motion pictures. No, it's not. And people forget that when it came out, okay, it was met with, eh, it wasn't this gigantic box office hit. It made money. It was not a failure. But it took a while for that thing to really hit. And the reviews, go back and look if you don't believe me. The reviews are tepid. You know, there is no there. I mean, I'm sure there are a few raves, but overall it was like, okay, it's well-made. 
Um, Stanley Kubrick, Jack Nicholson. I mean, how do you really go wrong there? But overall, it doesn't really have a lot to say. Over the years, it's been rehabilitated. But that's very that's no different than Halloween 3, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's no different than a number of horror films that were vilified when they came out and now have been looked now are looked upon as classic motion pictures. So anyway, that's a long answer to your question, but that's what my book is about. Well, a couple of things I want to address, because like you said, that is a mouthful. And you were right about Eli Roth as far as the documentary series. And part of your answer there is you must have been listening to the other interview I taped earlier because I was talking with an author who came out with a new book on the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And we were discussing about how that series, more so the original part of the series, is changing the culture of the American dream and post-Kennedy and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we get into that discussion. But you also mentioned about Temple University, and I'm not sure if you were aware of this, but I am in South Jersey, grew up here my whole life. I'm about 15 minutes from Temple University, so I do totally understand what you were saying there with the culture and the environment of that area. And the other thing was you you were talking about the like the Shining and Halloween 3 and all that fun stuff. And whereas the it's the evolution has grown on some of these films as time has gone on. And maybe I got a weird opinion with this, but I'm one of those ones when it comes to, say, Halloween three that always said if it wasn't Halloween three, it probably would have made so much more money. Because people were thinking when you say Halloween, you think Michael Myers. And that's that's right. But with all that being said, and you mentioned early on, you were at Horror Hound and all that fun stuff. And the horror fan themselves. Well, true horror fans, we see at conventions and everything else like that. But I heard you mention in previous conversations when I was getting ready for this. You were describing about horror fans not being true horror fans so could you actually explain that a little bit well what i mean by that is you know you can't just have you you need to know a lot about the genre like there's more to horror than just freddy jason Candyman, Mm -hmm. leatherface and pinhead there's far more to it than that and what i love that's been happening over the last couple of years, maybe the last 10, 12 years, are a number of new filmmakers that are taking horror in very different directions. And yet you have these purists that are just like, well, you know, I only watch this. Well, then you're really not a true horror fan. And, and what, and, you know, I I guess that's kind of a, a very childish thing to say, because really what defines a fan, if you love something, then you're a fan of it, I guess. But what I'm saying is, is when you have people that just put on blinders. It's like it's like defining the entire genre of science fiction by Star Wars or Star Trek. There's more to science fiction than Star Wars or Star Trek. 
okay? And that includes the literature. The same with horror. When you have people that have no idea where something's come from and you're like, yeah, but this is just a rehash of, of what was done. I'll give you an example. When The Sixth Sense came out, you know, this was just at the time the internet was starting to rise. And I don't even think I had the internet at the time, but everybody was making such a big deal over The Sixth Sense. Oh my God, the ending. You're never going to guess the ending. It's so fresh. It's so new. It's so original. So my one buddy said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to go see this. You've got to see this movie. I'm like, okay. Now, I don't really classify um, The Sixth Sense as horror, but it's more of a thriller. It's suspense thriller. But, you know, there's some horror elements to it for sure. However, I'm sitting in the theater and I'm not kidding you. About seven to 10 minutes in, I looked over at him. I go, let me guess, Bruce Willis is dead. And he goes, how the did you know that? I said, because I've seen it about five times on the Twilight Zone. Okay. I grew up, I read, you know, Daphne du Maire. Okay. I've, I've read, you know, so many authors where at the center of their ghost story, you're the ghost. Okay. The ghost realizes they're the ghost, that the person that's telling the story is dead. This was not hard to figure out. But when you have people that are just so either blinded or disconnected from material and literature and culture, well, that doesn't really, I mean, that may make you a fan of that franchise, but does it make you a fan of horror? If you can tell me every single thing about Captain James T. Kirk and Spock and McCoy, and you can't tell me anything about Isaac Asimov, or you can't tell me anything that goes all the way back to Jules Verne, or, or even, you know, go, we're talking about early, early, early science fiction, um, you're not really a science fiction fan. You're a Star Trek fan. That's for sure. There are Nightmare on Elm Street fans. And yet they, some can probably say, I've never seen the original Frankenstein. I've never seen the original black and white psycho. Um, you have a generation now of people that think that Rob Zombie's Halloween is the original Halloween. They go, what? There was another one before that? They do it. And so if you're going to enjoy something, you should, for your own edification and for your own education, you should want to know more about it. That's all I'm saying. It's not a snobbery thing like, oh, you're not a horror fan. Look, there, there's plenty of horror that I still have not seen. Mm -hmm. that, but it's not because I'm just stuck in what I call the, the unholy pentagram, right, of, of the five psycho killers. There, mm -hmm. There's far more out there than just those killers. There's... You know, it's, again, like you have to look at the, the work of Alfred Hitchcock, of John Carpenter, going all the way back even to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And when people go, I never even heard of that. I'm not saying you should sit down and have to watch it and analyze and know every bit of it, but you should be kind of aware where these things come from. Like reading Stephen King's Salem's Lot as a boy, I knew about Van Helsing. I, I read Bram Stoker's Dracula. I saw Bella Lugosi's Dracula. I grew up with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. And I understood when, you know, the school teacher was becoming really a modern day Van Helsing in the book, right? Like I was getting it. And that's, that was so cool to read King's work. And especially when you look at King and you read his stuff and you see that he's so connected to so many other horror authors and inspirations growing up. It's important to know these things. 
And you should know that about art in general, whether you walk into the Louvre, you walk into the Philadelphia Museum of Art, instead of just walking up and staring at something, it helps you to enjoy the experience more if you understand a little bit about the artist and the times in which the, the painting was made. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And if somebody thinks I'm asking too much of that, that's your problem, not mine. But this is why I, I feel we're in a lot of trouble pop culture wise, because all we're doing is kind of cannibalizing and regurgitating all the previous stuff that was better. And I'm not talking about just remakes, but we're, we're going in and we're, we're borrowing things. Like, for example, I, I saw, I think Twitter was pretty well divided on this in the new Picard season in season two. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Thatcher. Was it Kirk Thatcher? Uh, the guy who played the punk in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, when he gave Captain Kirk the finger, yeah. when they asked him to turn the boom box down on the bus, and then Spock reaches over and Vulcan pinches him and knocks him out. Well, apparently that character shows up in the second season of Picard. And it's cute. They have almost a, a same scene again. The problem with that is, and, and it's a small problem, is that a new audience, they don't get any that. That's for people older that grew up with Star Trek that were in their teens or whatever when they saw Star Trek 4 and go, oh my God, they're in San Francisco. That's the same guy. That was the guy in Star Trek 4, the one with the whales. And I get it. I understand it's cool, but there is a very fine line between nostalgia and overt fan service. And I think that is what really killed Halloween Kills. There was so much fan service in Halloween Kills that it just ruined the entire experience. And for me, I, I've said it before and people can disagree and that's what art is about. We're allowed to disagree. We're allowed to say something's beautiful and somebody looks at it and says, I get no feeling or it's ugly. But I, I felt that Halloween Kills was the dumbest and worst film of 2021. There is no doubt about it in my opinion, but that's me. You know, I wish some of my movies made the money that Halloween Kills made. But then again, that doesn't mean anything either. I mean, I just felt that Halloween Kills was ridiculous. Well, obviously, and I want to get in more into your projects in a second, but you bring up about the Halloween Kills and all there. And obviously, it's known that, that the third one is in the can and all that fun stuff. Yes. But... Yes. Do you think they could correct that to put a bow on that uh, trilogy per se? I mean, you know, it's, it's not up to me to say if they can correct something. Look, if a movie brings people enjoyment, so be it. Can, here's what I think. Here, here, let's answer your question. So we bring back <clears throat> Halloween 2018, okay? okay? And in the previews alone, the way that they cut the trailer, they made it very clear that nothing happened after the original 1977-78 film. That's it. There was only Halloween 1. That's it. They made it very clear that 1981's Halloween 2 did not happen. Okay? And the events of H2O did not happen, and that timeline did not happen. We are picking up from the night that Michael went out on his spree back in the 70s. That's it. So now here we are 40 years later. So we go through all this trouble 
to make sure that uh, Halloween 2 is no longer part of canon and part of the storyline. And there are a number of reasons for that. One of them is because John Carpenter never cared for Halloween 2 at all, okay? And he never liked the storyline and he didn't like the idea that Michael and Lori were brother and sister. He didn't like any of that. So now he gets a chance to kind of correct that, okay? So we go through great lengths to avoid Halloween 2, 1981. Then we open up with Halloween Kills. And in Halloween Kills, what do we get? Basically a remake of Halloween 2, 1981. That's what we get. Lori is stuck in a hospital while Michael's roaming around. She doesn't, as far as I know, leave the hospital at, at all throughout the entire motion picture. And um, we basically get Halloween 2, the very movie that they went to great lengths to say, this has nothing to do with it. So they could correct things by going in a very different direction in Halloween ends, maybe. Or what I'm afraid of, they're going to turn right around in that third one and it's going to be revealed that Lori and Michael were siblings anyway. There's a very good chance that could be the plot line of the third one. Hmm. Now, I don't know. I know Ryan Turek. I know Nick Castle. I never bother them for plot details. I, not that they tell me anyway, but I don't want to know. You know, I had lunch with Nick Castle after they wrapped 2018. And I said, well, what do you think? And he just said, I guess we're going to see. But I didn't go, Nick, what goes on? What happens? I'm not, that's not, we're professionals. I'm not a fan. Okay. We're professionals. I'll find out when I see it. That's how it'll work. <clears throat> but with Halloween ends, I don't know what you can do to correct it. By this point, we've kind of gone over the edge. Um, it's now its own thing. Uh, I don't know. The only thing I can say is, is please, no more evil dies tonight. I'm, <laughs> I'm really hoping we don't hear that phrase in the next one. Um, that became such a running gag in the theater where I was watching it. People were laughing around me every time they said it. So I don't know if that was intentional or not, but people were laughing. So, you know, if you love Halloween because you're an ardent fan, well, you're going to love Halloween Kills because that's all it is. It's 100% fan service. Oh my God, that's Lonnie. That's the kid that Dr. Loomis yelled at when he was hiding in the bushes. Oh my God, it's this one. Oh, look, the couple is in Michael's house. They redecorated his house. Like, you know, there's so much fan service in it. The one thing I will say the redeeming factor of Halloween Kills was that flashback to the 1970s. That was fantastic. The flashback, the cinematography looked just like Dean Cundy's cinematography. You could have gone right into that 70s timeline and I would have bought it all. I would have believed that was shot in the 1970s. But that's about the best thing I can say about Halloween Kills. I mean, you know, the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, at the end, we have this gigantic confrontation with the town and uh, nobody brings a fucking gun. Nobody brings a gun. We have a kid with a hockey stick. Really? And somebody tried to excuse it. Oh, no, that's a reference to Friday the 13th. Then bring a machete. Don't bring a hockey stick. Get out of here. This whole town of rednecks and rubes and nobody's got a gun. Except who? 
80-something-year-old Sheriff Brackett, right? And what's he doing there? He's 80-some years old. Shouldn't he, shouldn't he have retired? What's he doing at the hospital? And he hasn't seen Lori in how long? And he's sitting there, and with all these people screaming and yelling, he hears her voice and goes, Lori? What? All that was was an insert shot to the fans to go, look, Sheriff Brackett's back, fans. Look, Sheriff Brackett is back. That's all it was. What did he do? What was his purpose? Why did we need him in it? Oh, he comes up at the end. He's going to shoot Michael. He's there for Michael to kill. That's it. That's all he's there for. <laughs> so there were a lot of problems when you, it's one thing to be nostalgic. It's another thing to go overkill on fan service. Well, I remembered what I was thinking about during your first answer. And you mentioned about Miss Rose and earlier yes. today, uh, I had a chance to watch Camp Dread. So I actually liked the film and how it was done and everything, but Sure. Part of that. Part of that was, what was it like for you working with uh, Daniel Harris, Felissa, Eric Roberts, Roberts? And I know this sounds like an obvious question for those who've seen the movie, but was that the original camp from Sleepaway Camp? No. No. Just because I got that same. Po- Sorry. Good. That's good. But no, that that camp was in the Poconos of Pennsylvania. Uh, the camp that they used in sleepaway camp was called Camp Algonquin, and it was upstate New York. Um, ours, although it looks similar as the cabins and everything, and that's by design, um, working with, with that cast was just terrific. I mean, Danielle was a sweetheart, very nice person, very intelligent, knows her film, knows her horror. Uh, I loved working with her. Uh, Eric Roberts, everybody just enjoyed. I mean, you you know when the the crew especially loves an actor, when Eric, after he left, the day after Eric left, the crew is walking around going, I miss Eric. I miss Eric. (laughs) Um, And working with Felissa Rose, I mean, she's always the the most positive, upbeat energy on any movie set that I've worked with her on. So um, you couldn't ask for, for better people people to work with in that way to make that kind of a movie and the kids that filmed that movie with them everybody felt at ease everybody had fun uh, it was it was a good time it really was it really was kind of like going to summer camp which is a like you said a younger generation wouldn't have any idea what in the hell we're talking about when it comes to summer camp and stuff correct but i did see when I was putting together my notes and stuff that you actually had a chance for your first film project. If I have that right, you worked with Miss Cloris Leachman. So yep. she is complete legend in the entertainment field. So that's a pretty uh, nice uh, start to uh, your film career, would you say? I would. And, and I was very lucky. Uh, to not only just work with her, but to become good friends with her and uh, stayed in touch with her for years. I mean, all the way up until she died, we were in touch. So uh, when I would go to California, I'd look her up, I'd go to her home or we'd meet in Santa Monica. Um, It was always a good time. I mean, I actually went out drinking with Cloris Leachman one night. (laughs) 
in Santa Monica. And she got behind the bar and started pouring drinks. And one guy must have been half in the bag because he looked at her and he goes, what the fuck? Are, are you Cloris Leachman? And she's <laughs> like, what are you drinking, honey? Like, that's how she was. Um, she was so much fun. And really, when you say legend, uh, that word gets thrown around so much now. It's like iconic or awesome. Or but she's legitimate. Like that. <laughs> she is a legitimate legend. And um, I mean, record number of Emmys won, Oscar winner, uh, Golden Globe. I mean, pretty much every major award on the planet, Cloris has won. In addition to that, some of the greatest movies of all time and iconic films like Young Frankenstein, uh, you know, you're, you're going through like High Anxiety, uh, History of the World. Um, and then, of course, on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Right. So you've got somebody that just was fantastic. And I loved working with her on set. And she had so many great ideas with the character. And most of all, I say this all the time in interviews. She didn't play my grandmother. She channeled her. When you watch that movie, that's exactly how my grandmother was. Watching Cloris play my grandmother is the closest I'm ever going to get to seeing my grandmother alive again, watching wow. that movie. That's a testament there, that's for sure. And when, yes, we first, when we first connected with you, you were part of our first night of a fundraiser for Children's Hospital. And we did a watch along of Correct. Death House. And I know it was promoted and you talked about it there, but, and I totally get why you said it and disagree with it. The promotion was, it's the expendables and a hard label, but it's truly not. Yes, it is in a sense of who is in it because you get a vast, a big uh, variety of cast of people who are legendary in the business, but they're not, it's not Tony Todd coming in as Candyman. It's not Kane Hodder coming in as Jason. Right. And, you know, Bill Mosley's not coming in as Chop Top. And, you know, it's, yes, it's the expendables because of the casting, but it's not these guys coming in as these iconic characters. Correct. So what was it for you in terms of fleshing out Gunnar Hansen's idea? Because I, I know what you said during the watch along, but also I've read things that was like three quarters of the way and 85% and just these different things and crazy ideas that the internet says, but what, how much of Gunnar's <laughs> initial idea was into the film when you, got a hold of it well just remember a section of the internet also thinks that president trump is going to return with john f kennedy jr as a running mate <laughs> oh, don't, so i i have uh, a history degree so don't get me going I'll on that. that in perspective too yeah right and then then we can talk about you know the ones that believe that 5g service is spreading covid but the internet also talks about that no um gunner came to me uh his manager came to me uh, they had Gunner's script. I think what you're referring to is uh, Gunner had his original script. He wasn't pleased with it overall, and he asked for a rewrite. He hired on another writer before I came along. 
Death House had been floating around for, you know, close to five years, I believe, something like that. So, you know, for Gunner to, he had to hand it over to somebody else is really what it was. So Gunner does that. Uh, he gets the rewrite back and he hates it. Gunner is not pleased at all with that rewrite. This is long before I came along. So he felt that the rewrite was too bloody. It was too like torture porn. And so when I finally sat down with Gunner and when I sat down with his manager, Gunner expressed all this to me. And he said, I have a real problem with dialogue. I don't think the dialogue in my script is all that good. I need that touched up. And all I want out of mine is the concept of good and evil. I want that, the origins and, and the meaning of good and evil. So that's a lot to work with. So I read on the way home, on the flight home from Los Angeles, I read the, the rewrite script after I read Gunners and I got it. And then I read the rewrite and I saw exactly what he meant. And it was like, we're not even touching that. And Gunner said, I don't want anything of that rewrite in this re, you know, in this rewrite coming up that you're going to do, Harrison. So I met with Gunner. We talked about it. I talked with him on the phone. We went back and forth. And I was sitting um, in a restaurant, kind of like a tavern. I think a Super Bowl was coming on and they ran a preview for, I think it was Jurassic World at the time. And uh, suddenly it hit me. It's like the original plot of Gunners was, is a documentary film crew goes into the basement of this abandoned asylum. And the, the people that were once in the asylum have left and they're now underground. So they're in these catacombs and they're just kind of fucking people off left and right. And Gunner knew that there has to be more than that. And quite frankly, we've seen all that before. And the remake, all they did was, is change it from a documentary film crew to a college class that is kind of like into urban exploration kind of thing. But same thing, they go into an abandoned asylum, nothing there. They go into the bowels of the asylum, boom, the crazies are there. And then they get killed off one by one. And what I didn't want, what Gunner didn't want, is to be like, oh, look, there's Sid Hay. And then Sid Haig comes out of the shadows and he kills someone. And, you know, and then we, you know, just do that with all these horror people, right? Like they have three second cameos, 30 second cameos, and they're out. So it hit me, why not make it like a little bit more like Escape from New York and have it that it's this big underground prison and that it's a government run prison. It's like a supermax kind of prison for the world's worst. And also maybe for supernatural prisoners as well, which we find out that's what's in the bottom of, of the jail. And Gunner wanted to keep that concept. The five evils in Death House were originally called the four horsemen in Gunner's script. And um, would that have I been like the... Would that have been like the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse kind of deal or? Very similar. Very similar. Yes. So I added the five evils to flesh out the points of the pentagram. And I added a woman. I added Lindsay Hartley as, as Balthorian. So I wanted it also to evoke Dante's nine, nine circles of hell. Okay. So we 
wanted that. Gunner was thrilled with all of this. Um, what I did not know at the time is that Gunner was terminally ill and he never let on. He never told me. I kind of felt something was up because he was really, really conscious about the time frame of getting the movie made. And um, he was out visiting a lot. He was like on a almost like a nationwide tour of visiting friends and family. And now I know in hindsight, it was a goodbye tour, right? He was saying goodbye. And um, he was nothing but a gentleman, very quiet, a big teddy bear. And really in an, in an alternate life, he could have played Santa Claus. That's what he could have played. And, um, you know, toward the end, uh, I was able to submit my first draft of Death House to him. Uh, he read it. He, he said, you have my blessing. I love it. And that's how Death House went on to become what you saw on screen. Well, with that being said, and obviously you have years of experience writing, and I get a chance to ask musicians this, but I'm curious to know from a movie and television standpoint. Sure. When can you put down the pen or the keyboard, essentially, and say, <laughs> okay, I'm happy with this. Let's go to the next step in, in terms of the process of making this, whatever it is you're working on. I don't know. You just kind of know. I think any writer will tell you that. I, I, I think it's just you know that your script is hitting all the proper beats right now, that the, the dialogue is in pretty good shape. Because look, here's the other thing. You do know that once you start shooting, that script's going to change again. Actors are going to have their spin on things. They're going to have their ideas. And I'm always very open to those kind of things. For example, in my script for Death House with Gunner, uh, the relationship between Kane Hodder and Courtney Palm is not as defined in the way of a sexual relationship as those two made it. The two of them work together and we pretty much get the idea that even though she was embedded as a spy to get him, to capture him with the FBI kind of thing, uh, something happened between them. And it's pretty clear in the movie that they had a relationship of some kind. That's an actor. I never wrote that. That's what actors do. So you know that certain things will change anyway, but I think it's just a point where you look and you go, okay, if it's a three act structure, it works. This happens, that happens by page 30. Looks like we have the big action mark here to shift us over into the second act. It's hitting all the beats. I can, I can go through and hit all the beats and go, yep, then this happens, that happens. As a result, this happens. You just know that, okay, I feel it's in good enough shape now as a first draft, maybe to send it out and get the feedback and go from there. Now, two more questions with death house and uh, we have Harrison Smith on and do appreciate the time, but I'm curious to know, and you mentioned this was you were a big proponent of practical effects compared yes. to and everything else like that is just we know cgi just everything else what is it about practical effects that you enjoyed not only for this film but in your projects in general 
Well, I think it's the, the real honest answer to that. Like, you know, I hate when people say, oh, like I was going to lie to you. The, but, but the answer is that the effects were crafted by hand, that there's an element when you know that something is physical, like the thing, when you watch the thing, you know, 1982, and you watch it and you're sitting there going, God damn, how did they do that? Like, that's amazing. You know, and you don't want to, <clears throat> that's one thing the DVD and the internet age has done. It's taken away the magician's tricks. Like, I don't want to know all the time. I, I want to be amazed. Like, I don't want to know how they got the blood to come out of Johnny Depp's waterbed. I don't want to know how Amanda Wiss went up the wall and up the ceiling and all that. I mean, now I know, but at the time sitting in the theater, there's a wonderful feeling of going, whoa, look at, like, you're, you feel like you're watching something cool and special. And although great amounts of talent and work and art go into CGI, in the end, we know how that's done. And that is tap, 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 right? We know how it's done. It's designed, it's drawn, it's sculpted, but in the end, the computer is doing the heavy lifting. There aren't a team of puppeteers beneath a table. There isn't something that's hooked up to hydraulics. There, we, we don't have that. And so the element of, of practical effects for me brings in again, that cultural bond as us as people knowing that a human being is hands or her hands are doing that instead of just tap, 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 stroke of a pen and all of that. And I, again, I'm not dismissing all of that. Look, I've seen beautiful and wonderful CGI. That's not the issue here, but that's why I lean toward practical effects because of its physicality, I think is what it is. And final question for you. And I think this is good because you kind of mentioned it earlier in terms of the experience of going to a theater and having that communal experience and stuff. And obviously with some of your answers and what you've seen in theaters and stuff, I would think kind of shows your age and we're in a similar age group, but what are your thoughts? And it's been such an evolution of things when it comes to say, you see things in a theater, then you had the VHS error the DVD error. Now we're doing Blu-rays and streaming. So the entertainment industry has such an evolution to where we are currently. Is there, is that a good or a bad thing with like say streaming and all that kind of stuff? Or can we still have the aspects of going to a theater and enjoying and not everybody watching on our phone and what not? Well, there's evolution and then there's de-evolution. And I think is for as many steps forward that digital technology has brought us, it's also taken us back a number of steps as well. The number one problem I think most people would agree with, aside from high ticket prices, is going to a movie because people just can't fucking behave. I think that's the biggest turnoff for people. They love going to a movie. They don't want to sit there and listen to people talking. They don't want to sit there and up ahead are 12 lit. And most of all, 
now with the way things are and have been for some time, they don't want to go to the movie theater and have to look for the exits in case there's an active shooter in the theater. So we have these problems now as well. I think people aren't shunning the movie theater experience. They're shunning people because people ruin the experience. And that's a problem. For as much as people bring to the experience, it seems like the troublemakers have outshadowed or, you know, outweigh the positives with these negatives. You know, I mean, I'm sure anybody listening right now could give me five stories right off the top of their head of jackasses sitting in a movie theater and you paid 10, 12, I don't know, whatever, 12 bucks to get in. And that's without your popcorn and your soda and whatever. And you're sitting there and you're listening to some asshole talking on the phone, their phone lighting up, chirping. Someone's always got the goddamn phone not quiet, so it's got to go off in the middle of the movie, right? And then, you know, you can't even get up now and politely go over and ask someone to turn their phone off because you don't know, somebody will pull out a gun and shoot you in the face. So now we have that. So streaming technology has given us a benefit along with giant televisions in our living room and we can kind of recreate the experience, right? And enjoy it without some asshole ruining it for us. Or the ever popular, let's bring the little baby to the nine o'clock, 9.30 showing of, I don't know, Dr. Sleep or whatever. So we get to listen to that. So those are the benefits of streaming. We have accessibility, we have convenience, and we have safety right? That's all great. And we can watch things over and over again. However, it does diminish the experience of enjoying that film with a group of people. Because when you do get a great audience, it's a wonderful thing, you know? But it seems as of late, I don't know about you. And if anybody listening, I am so fucking sick of crazy. I'm sick of crazy people. I'm sick of crazy anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists and, you know, end of world doomsday preppers and, you know, uh, people who believe in crisis actors and everything's a conspiracy, everything's a plot. And, and we're talking all this outrageous nonsense on top of people that are not mentally balanced, that are walking the streets. This is a problem. This is a major problem. And I'm tired of it. And I think a lot of people are too. And when you go to sit down to watch a movie, you shouldn't have to be worried if your child is going to get shot. You shouldn't have to worry about where are the exits in case someone starts firing a semi-automatic weapon in this theater. We didn't grow up with that. No. People should not have to live in fear when they're going out to enjoy. And we have a problem. And I'm not making fun of anyone, and I'm not saying I'm better than anyone, and I'm not saying that people with mental issues should be discriminated against. There's a big difference between having true issues and having psychopathic or sociopathic issues, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's where, to answer your question, I don't know, I think is for much of an evolution that it's been, 
it's also been a de-evolution because we are losing the human aspect of enjoying motion pictures. Technology is great and it's convenient and the pictures are beautiful. 4K, Blu-ray, <clears throat> you name it, it's gorgeous. But we're also missing the fun of, of a theater screaming in terror or laughing or, or jumping in their seats. We're missing that. Yeah. So if you said earlier, you mentioned about the being interactive on Twitter and stuff. And folks, the book is going to be this time. It's personal. It's coming out May 1st. It's available for pre-order now. But if people want to interact with you on Twitter or, or any other form of social media, where can they do so? The number one place you can find me is Twitter. And my handle on Twitter is Harrison Smith 85. That's Send. the best place you can find. Me. Yep. Harrison Smith 85. Well, Harrison, I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day and special seasonal gift sets. But also, let's not forget large orders for party favors by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansopery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansopery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends you. This is Beatrice Buckley, a.k.a. Amanda Kruger for Nightmare on Elm Street 5 and other films, and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio.